Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. On October 26, 1965, the Indianapolis police were called to a house on the corner of East New York Street and North Denny Street. When Officer Melvin Dixon arrived at the house, he was shown the dead body of a teenage girl named Sylvia Likens. Her caregiver, who had stated her name was Gertrude Wright, told the officer that Sylvia was a troublemaker and she often went out with boys to wild sex parties. She explained that the previous night, Sylvia had left with a group of juvenile delinquent boys who must have taken her somewhere, sexually assaulted her, beat her up, and then dumped her back on the lawn at her house. Gertrude said she had found the girl half-naked and badly beaten, and she tried to care for her, but she died soon after being found outside. Before she died, though, she was able to give Gertrude a letter she had written to her parents. The officer read the letter, and Sylvia had conveniently described exactly what had happened to her the night before, and in it, she confessed to being a problem for her caregiver, Gertrude. Not finding this oddly specific deathbed letter strange, the officer took Gertrude at her word, and when the other people in the house corroborated her story, including Sylvia's own sister, Jenny, there wasn't much else he could do but call the coroner. When the doctor arrived, about an hour later, he inspected the body and when it was ready to be transported to the coroner's office, the police started to leave. That's when Jenny tugged on one of the officer's sleeves and whispered, quote, Get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. This is Monsters. Gertrude Van Fossen was born on September 22, 1929, in Indianapolis, Indiana, to Hugh and Molly Van Fossen. Gertrude was the third of six children, and despite her mother showing love and affection for her five siblings, she had a dislike of Gertrude. It was said that Gertrude was Hugh's favorite child, which just added more hostility toward her from her mother and siblings. When she was 11 years old, while reading with Hugh, he suddenly got sick and collapsed. He had had a sudden heart attack, which had nothing to do with Gertrude. But when Molly ran into the room, she screamed at her, What did you do? Her resentment toward her daughter only increased after Hugh's death. Molly would comfort her other children, but when Gertrude would wake up at night with nightmares, the mother would only get angry that she woke the other children. All of Gertrude's siblings would instigate attacks from other students at school, and even Molly spread rumors that Gertrude was dirty and promiscuous. This behavior caused Gertrude to develop a bitterness toward other women that would result in devastating consequences. The constant bullying Gertrude received from her family at home and at school caused her to search for a way out at an early age. At 16 years old, Gertrude married an 18-year-old police officer named John Banaszewski. Things didn't start off well as Gertrude had never really had a parent around who was interested in teaching her how to take care of herself. She didn't know how to cook and wasn't great at cleaning up. 
She did work as a clerk at a drugstore to help make ends meet, but married life was not immediately what John was expecting. Three years into their marriage, Gertrude gave birth to their first child, a daughter named Paula. Two years later, she had another daughter named Stephanie. She began struggling to care for the two children, and her upbringing likely didn't make things easier for her. Soon after Stephanie was born, Gertrude had a nervous breakdown and was diagnosed with neuroticism, which isn't a condition now. She would likely have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder. Gertrude didn't want to turn out like her mother, though, so she worked hard at being a loving, attentive parent. She eventually had John Jr. and then another daughter named Marie. Almost all of her attention was on the children and her husband began feeling left out. She was constantly nagging him about his drinking or money and eventually he became physically abusive. She hid her bruises for a while, but in 1955, she told John that she wanted a divorce and he happily agreed. Alone with four kids to take care of, Gertrude quickly found herself married again, this time to Edward Guthrie. Edward was unemployed at the time and it's likely he was more attracted to Gertrude's child support payments than he was to her. It seemed that that was the only thing about her children that he actually liked. It wasn't long before Edward hit one of the children and the marriage quickly deteriorated. As soon as he found a job and could live without his wife's child support payments, he filed for divorce. They were married for less than a year. Gertrude was able to squeak by with her child support and odd jobs, but being a single mother was much more stigmatized at the time and when she had the opportunity to rekindle things with John Sr., she took the chance. The couple remarried and Gertrude did everything she could to keep her husband happy. It wasn't long before she was pregnant again, but she ended up having a miscarriage very close to when the baby was full term. This caused Gertrude to fall into a deep depression, something that should be understandable, but John wasn't really the understanding type. All he could see was Gertrude not taking care of the kids or the house, so he tried to solve the problem by beating her. Naturally. That didn't end up snapping her out of her depression. Shocking, I know. But when she got pregnant again, Gertrude was immediately back to her old self and John stopped abusing her. Then there was another miscarriage and that cycle would continue. Gertrude did have two more children over the seven years she and John were married. She had their fourth daughter, Shirley, and another son, James. The rest of the pregnancies ended up in miscarriage and eventually John got tired of the emotional roller coaster and filed for divorce. Again. Gertrude was alone once again and now she had six children to take care of. It was around this time that it's reported that Gertrude started physically abusing her children. She was alone in her 30s and just barely surviving on just child support, and after an unknown amount of miscarriages and three failed marriages, her mental health was suffering. When she learned that she was going to be evicted from her house, she began having an affair with a 27-year-old married man named Dennis Wright. As soon as Dennis's wife left him, Gertrude and her six children immediately moved into his house. Soon, Dennis was supporting the whole family and his house was trashed. Gertrude did nothing to clean up after herself or her children, but every time Dennis had a complaint, she would use sex to keep him complacent. Dennis was already planning to get out of the relationship when he came home from work one day to an immaculate house and a home-cooked meal. Later that night, Gertrude softened him up with sex and then brought up marriage. 
Dennis was still married and didn't have money to file for divorce. That's when Gertrude told him that she thought she was pregnant. Dennis didn't want children. He didn't want them with his wife and he didn't want them with Gertrude. When the thought of having a seventh child running around his house hit him, he hauled off and punched Gertrude in the face. Then he began punching her repeatedly in the stomach. Dennis succeeded at causing Gertrude to have a miscarriage. After that, they stayed together, but neither one hid the fact that they were unhappy. Now, despite the unhappiness and desire to not have children, Dennis continued to have unprotected sex with Gertrude, so it was no surprise when she got pregnant again. This time, though, she didn't tell Dennis until she was much farther along. To her surprise, he didn't get angry. He just seemed to accept the news and she thought this meant that he was going to accept the baby. But when she got home from the hospital after giving birth, Dennis was gone. The reason he wasn't angry was because he had quietly accepted that he was going to leave. Gertrude remained in the house with her children, Dennis Jr. being the seventh and last child she would have. This betrayal took a toll on Gertrude and she stopped eating, going from a relatively pretty woman to a sickly, skeletal form in a matter of weeks. Her constant chain smoking didn't help her health at all either. She didn't want people to know that Dennis was an illegitimate child, so she started going by Gertrude Wright, though she and Dennis Sr. had never married. She claimed that her quote-unquote husband was away in the army. John wasn't keeping up on his child support payments, so she did chores for her neighbors in order to help pay the bills. This included regular babysitting. While Gertrude was on a downward spiral, Paula became the head of the household and the house became a popular spot for other youths to hang out. They could smoke and listen to music without a parent around to nag them. Gertrude grew to enjoy having the other young teens around, thinking of her as the cool mom. Sylvia Likens was born on January 3, 1949, in Lebanon, Indiana. She was the middle child between two sets of fraternal twins. Daniel and Diana were two years older than her, and Benny and Jenny were one year younger than her. As an infant, Jenny would contract polio that would cause one of her legs to be weaker than the other, making her require a leg brace. Sylvia's parents, Lester and Betty Likens, were carnival workers who regularly traveled around the state selling candy and soda at carnivals. When they traveled, the younger children, including Sylvia and Jenny, usually stayed with their grandmother. In July of 1965, Betty decided to leave Lester. She woke 16-year-old Sylvia and 15-year-old Jenny up early one morning and told them to pack their bags. They took a bus to the other side of Indianapolis, where they rented a small apartment near East New York Street. Not long after, while at a nearby store, Betty was caught shoplifting and arrested. After that, Sylvia and Jenny wandered around town with nothing but $2 on them. They made their way back to the apartment, but their mother never came back home. After a few days, they ran into a friend, Darlene McGuire, who was on her way to hang out with some friends that the Likens didn't know. This is where Sylvia and Jenny were introduced to Paula Banaszewski. That evening, when Paula asked if the girls could stay for dinner, Gertrude said that Jenny could stay, but not Sylvia. It was a sign that Gertrude likely was already threatened by the pretty young girl. Jenny said that she couldn't stay without her sister, and Gertrude conceded. They ended up staying the night, but around midnight, Lester arrived with his oldest son, Daniel. 
Their father had gone to the apartment to inform Betty that he had gotten a new carnival job and asked if she wanted to go with him. The girls told him that Betty had been arrested and they hadn't seen her in days. It would turn out that she had been released shortly after she was arrested, but never returned to the apartment. Lester told the girls that he was going to leave for his job and they would be going to stay with his mother in Lebanon, but Gertrude offered to let them stay with her instead. They had already made friends with her children and that way they could stay in the same neighborhood. She offered to do it in exchange for $20 a week. The girls liked that idea, so Lester agreed and gave her $20 in advance and went off to find Betty. He would eventually find her at her parents' house, and together they went off to work the carnival with their son Daniel. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The dream arrangement was quick to deteriorate. There were now nine children in a home with one adult. There weren't enough beds for everyone. There was no stove and not enough silverware. They had to resort to sharing a single spoon at times. Sylvia happily helped with the chores around the house, but it mattered little to Gertrude. When Lester's next $20 payment didn't arrive on time, Gertrude slapped both of them and yelled that she, quote, took care of you two bitches for a week for nothing. When the money order arrived in the mail the next day, Gertrude didn't apologize. The following week, Lester and Betty came to visit, but the girls didn't mention the previous abuse. At the time, physical punishment was much more commonplace, and it's likely that Sylvia and Jenny didn't even think that it was out of line. It's said that Lester told Gertrude to use a heavy hand with them when he originally left them in her care. After a short visit, Lester gave Gertrude another $20 and they left. One day, Sylvia and Jenny went to the park and collected empty soda bottles, which they returned for a small amount of money. It was enough to buy some candy, and when the sisters returned to the Banashevsky home, they gave some of it to the other children who lived there. When Gertrude found out, she was sure that they had stolen the candy and dragged them both into the bedroom for a beating. She would use a wooden paddle to punish the girls, starting out on the buttocks, but eventually hitting them on the back and sometimes even the back of the head. Due to Gertrude's asthma and bronchitis, she would sometimes feel too weak so she would have Paula dish out the beating. Despite being friendly with the girls, Paula didn't seem to mind abusing them. Paula was seen at church on August 1st with a broken wrist, which she openly bragged that it was from punching Sylvia in the face. She told one person that she tried to kill her. Paula would go on to use the cast as a weapon after hearing that Sylvia called Gertrude a derogatory name. Paula hadn't heard Sylvia call Gertrude that. She just heard that it happened, so she smacked the girl in the mouth with the cast. Sylvia was also beaten after Gertrude accused her of stealing $10 from her. Again, there was no evidence that she had, but an accusation was more than enough reason for a punishment at the hands of Gertrude or Paula at this point. The lack of food in the house meant that Sylvia and Jenny were the first to go without. The Banashevsky children always ate first, and then if Sylvia would find a scrap of leftover food, she would be punished. 
All of the children attended a church dinner and ate a good meal, but when they got back home, Paula said that Sylvia and Jenny ate too much. That caused them to be stripped and paddled. Sylvia was hit 15 times on the back with the wooden punishment device. Another time, Gertrude found out that Sylvia's older sister, Diana, had bought her a sandwich when she was visiting one day. Despite it being two months after the offense, the girl was beaten even more severely with the paddle. Food became a common means of torture as well. Gertrude, Paula, and a neighbor boy named Randy all thought it would be fun to take turns loading a hot dog with as many condiments and spices as they could and forcing Sylvia to eat it. When she refused, Gertrude became enraged and shoved the hot dog into her mouth, smearing condiments all over her face. Sylvia tried to resist, but Gertrude's fingers were forcing the food down her throat, which ended up causing her to vomit. Gertrude was adamant that Sylvia was going to eat all of the hot dog, so she grabbed the girl by the hair and pulled her down to the floor. There, Sylvia was forced to eat her own vomit off of the filthy kitchen floor. Paula and Randy laughed as Sylvia choked down the rest of the hot dog. By the time summer was over, the Banaszewskis had focused almost all of their abuse on Sylvia. Though Jenny wasn't safe from all physical punishment, Sylvia seemed to be the true target of Gertrude's violence, which in turn made her everybody's target. Paula, Stephanie, and Sylvia all began attending Arsenal Technical High School. Stephanie had become friends with Sylvia and was one of the few people in the Banaszewski house that was nice to her. They both had student jobs in the cafeteria, which meant they both got free lunch. Some days, it was the only meal that Sylvia would eat. When Sylvia had a minor lapse in judgment and started a rumor at school that the Beneshevsky girls would sleep with any boy for money, it turned her constant abuse into full-blown torture. After being continually abused and insulted, the bitterness got the better of her and she thought she could also dish out some abuse. After a boy asked Stephanie how much she charged for sex, she immediately found Sylvia and punched her in the face. Stephanie, being one of the only Banaszewskis that didn't enjoy hurting Sylvia, quickly apologized and the two made up. That didn't stop Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, from confronting Sylvia and beating her up. Then, when Gertrude found out, she dished out a beating with a large leather belt. This abuse was followed by another outburst by Gertrude, where she held lit matches against the young girl's fingers. It wasn't long before Sylvia was no longer attending school. Her bruises and frail appearance from lack of food was becoming too noticeable. When friends would come by the house looking for Sylvia, Gertrude would tell them lies to make them hate her. The woman told 13-year-old Anna Sisko that Sylvia had said her mother goes out with various men for $5. When Sylvia soon appeared at the door, Anna attacked her, slapping and kicking her. When other kids in the house tried to break up the fight, Gertrude stopped them and said, quote, Let them fight their own fight. Their own fight? Sylvia most likely had no idea why Anna was even fighting her. Gertrude slowly built up the abuse by other children, her own kids and other kids from the neighborhood. It went from teasing to light abuse to severe abuse. The mob mentality made them not question what they were doing. They were all looking around, seeing everyone else doing it, so it must have been okay. They would hear any rumor that Sylvia had said something mean about them and instantly attack her. Paula would hit her in the head with anything she could find. 
Gertrude began blaming Sylvia for her medical problems, claiming her medical bills were her fault, because it couldn't possibly be the chain-smoking. In the middle of September, Paula dragged Sylvia to the back door of the house and told her to get away and stay away. She said it was for her own safety. Sylvia didn't have anywhere else to go, so she stayed. It would be the only mercy that Paula would ever show towards Sylvia. It marked the beginning of the end for Sylvia, and if she had known what was to come, she surely would have fled that home. At the beginning of October, Lester and Betty came back to Indianapolis and visited their daughters. Neither Sylvia or Jenny mentioned the abuse, but they did complain about being hungry. It's reported that the parents took their girls out for sodas. They gave Gertrude another $20 and gave the girls some money to buy new shoes. The Lycans were leaving to go to work at a carnival in Florida and would be back permanently in three weeks, but that would be too late to save their daughter. In October, Sylvia was so malnourished that her wounds wouldn't heal. She was spotted by a neighbor looking for food in the trash. When she tried to sneak back into the house, she was caught by Gertrude who had a number of other young boys with her. She had an empty glass soda bottle in her hand and she told Sylvia to strip. She handed the bottle to the girl, called her a whore, and then demanded she give the boys a show. Jenny was also in attendance and Gertrude instructed her to show her sister what kind of girl she was. After Sylvia was completely nude, she took the glass bottle and inserted it into her vagina. Despite the rumors that Gertrude was spreading about her, she had never had sex. The boys in the living room hollered with excitement as Sylvia reluctantly performed. Gertrude wasn't happy with the pace, so she smacked the bottom of the bottle until it couldn't go inside the girl any further. Sylvia shrieked with pain, and when Stephanie heard, she stormed into the living room and slapped Sylvia, demanding that she go to her room. Sylvia tried to remove the bottle, but was unable to, so Gertrude grabbed it and yanked it out, revealing a considerable amount of blood inside. Not long after, a new couple moved in next door, and the woman, Phyllis Vermillion, stopped by the Banaszewski home inquiring about a babysitter. While there, she saw Sylvia, emaciated and with a black eye, and when she asked the girl about it, Gertrude just yelled at her to go to her room. She openly admitted to the neighbor that she was the one who gave the girl the black eye. Needless to say, Phyllis found someone else to watch her kids, but she did remain friendly with the woman she would only know as Miss Wright. When Phyllis came back over a week later, she saw Sylvia in an even worse state and Paula said she was nothing but trouble. Gertrude claimed that Sylvia had been out with older men and they believed she was pregnant. If Phyllis was concerned for Sylvia's safety, she didn't do anything to report it. A different neighborhood mother had made a report to the local health authority about Sylvia's wounds, but when a nurse stopped by the Banaszewski home, Gertrude claimed that the girl had been prostituting herself and she had kicked her out of the house. Sylvia was really in the basement, a place that would become her regular bedroom. Gertrude declared that Sylvia was unclean and had her children give her baths in scalding water every other night. She was forced into the basement and not given food or water. Gertrude began putting cigarettes out on Sylvia and tossing lit matches at her, one time igniting her clothes. They were quickly extinguished, though. They even resorted to literally rubbing salt into her wounds. 
Gertrude decided that they needed proof that they had a good reason to punish Sylvia, so in the middle of October, they had Sylvia write a letter to her parents confessing to causing problems for her caretaker. Sylvia was too hungry and weak to resist or probably even care about what she was writing. Another time when Sylvia complained of being hungry, Gertrude instructed her son John Jr. to find a soiled diaper and feed the contents to the girl. He did as he was told and forced the feces from the diaper into her mouth and gave her a cup of water. The next day, the cup was refilled with urine. On October 22nd, Sylvia was given a small bowl of soup and told she could only use her fingers to eat it. That night, Sylvia was tied to a bed and ordered not to wet herself. The problem was that the beatings she had received had damaged her kidneys and left her virtually incontinent. So when the morning came and it was revealed that she had wet the bed, Gertrude decided that Sylvia needed more severe punishment. At some point during Sylvia and Jenny's stay at the Banaszewski's, a 14-year-old neighbor boy named Richard Hobbs became a frequent fixture at the house. He would never be identified as a friend of any of the other children, though, and when later asked by the police, he claimed that he was friends with Gertrude. Rick's mother was fighting terminal cancer, and his father was usually away at work, so he gravitated toward Gertrude for companionship. It's unknown if anything sexual happened between them, beyond her once performing a strip tease for him, but that seemed to be enough to get him to do anything she wanted. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. In late October, what Gertrude wanted Rick to do was to put a tattoo on Sylvia. She said to the girl, quote, You have branded my daughters, so now I'm going to brand you. She gave Rick a needle and told him to carve, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, into her stomach. Sylvia was so weak and dehydrated that she didn't even cry out in pain. After Rick had started, Gertrude had gone to bed, because torturing a teenage girl can be so exhausting, and in her absence, Rick and Shirley had the idea to brand an S into her skin. The plan was to heat up the curved end of a crowbar and use it one way and then the other to form an S, but Shirley messed up and it ended up a three. When Gertrude woke up, she was delighted by the message now permanently etched into the girl's skin. She made fun of her, saying, quote, Are you proud of it? No one will ever marry you now. I'm confused about how Gertrude thought she was going to get away with this abuse. I know that neither Sylvia nor Jenny told their parents about the abuse when they visited, and Jenny would later testify that they were too afraid that nobody would believe them and then they would suffer more abuse by Gertrude after their parents left again. But surely, once their parents were back for good, they would be more likely to tell them what had happened, and the wounds and branding would surely be evidence that they were telling the truth. Not only that, but if the Lycans took Sylvia to the doctor, say for her sudden, uncontrollable incontinence, they would likely discover the long-term effects that the abuse had caused. Even in the 60s, Sylvia's abuse would be pretty clear. 
Eventually, Gertrude came to the realization that Sylvia would have to die, but for some reason, she didn't want her to die yet. It seemed that she wanted more time to come up with a plan to get rid of her completely. On October 24th, Sylvia attempted to escape the house, but she was so weak that Gertrude had no problem bringing her back in from the porch. That's when Gertrude put her in the kitchen and tried to feed her in an attempt to prolong the inevitable. Sylvia tried to eat some toast, but the food just fell out of her swollen mouth. In frustration, Gertrude beat Sylvia across the face with a metal curtain rod until it bent. The following day, Jenny tried to get her sister to eat, but she was also unsuccessful. With Sylvia's death inevitable, Gertrude had some of her kids help clean her up. That consisted of pouring laundry detergent all over Sylvia's body and spraying her down with a garden hose. Stephanie, still the closest thing to a friend that Sylvia had besides Jenny, came home and shut off the hose, determined to give Sylvia a proper bath, but she wasn't able to get her up the stairs. When Rick came over, he noticed that Sylvia was barely breathing and he helped get her upstairs into a warm bath. After the bath, they wrapped her in a towel and laid her on the bed. Then Gertrude stormed in, yelling that Sylvia was faking it. Quote, she's a faker, she shouted, and then she threw a book right at the girl's head. Stephanie yelled at her mother to get out, and Rick managed to push her out of the door. Sylvia looked up at Stephanie and said, quote, Oh, Stephanie, take me home. And that's when Sylvia Likens stopped breathing. Rick tried to give her mouth to mouth, but it was no use. Her months of horrible abuse were finally over. The Banaszewskis didn't have a phone, so Rick ran to a gas station and called the police. Officer Dixon arrived on the scene first, and he was told the tall tale about Sylvia's promiscuity and her night out with a group of troublemakers. The idea of this petite woman in front of him having tortured a teen girl to death was so foreign that Officer Dixon initially took the story at face value. But it was when Jenny begged for help in exchange for the truth that authorities started questioning her story. First, they started with the letter. It read, Mr. and Mrs. Likens, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something. So I got in the car and they all got what they wanted, and they did, and when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach. I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do just to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all of her kids. I cost her $35 for a hospital in one day and I wouldn't do nothing around the house. I have done anything to do things to make things out of the way to make things worse for them. Sylvia had written down exactly what Gertrude told her to say. Well, mostly. It seemed in her weakened state she got some things wrong, which made it sound a little confusing. Why would she write a letter to her parents and address it to Mr. and Mrs. Likens? Also, she clearly was supposed to have written this letter after she was attacked by the Mystery Boys, but she was allegedly found near death on the front porch. Did she happen to have a pen and paper on her and write this while laying on the porch? A letter that conveniently clears Gertrude of any wrongdoing? It doesn't make any sense. 
The autopsy also did not match the story that Gertrude had told. Sylvia had cuts, burns, bruises, and puncture wounds all over her body. She had clearly suffered from long-term starvation. Her bones were sticking out prominently. Her liver was yellow and showed signs of malnutrition, and her kidneys and brain were severely damaged. Her vagina was red and swollen, and they would later learn about the incident with the soda bottle. Her cause of death was determined to be subdural hematoma due to head trauma. After hearing what Jenny had to say about what happened, she was taken to her sister Diana's house while her parents were notified. Police arrested Gertrude Banaszewski and her children Paula, Stephanie, and John Jr. They also arrested Rick Hobbs and Coy Hubbard. Gertrude immediately denied any involvement in Sylvia's abuse or death, eventually blaming it on her own daughter, Paula. But when Rick was interrogated, he sung like a bird. She refused food. We tried to get her soup every once in a while and stuff like that, and she wouldn't take it. Well, how about these scratch marks on her stomach? Who put them on her? I did. Why? Well, Gertie just thought of it. She said, since you branded us, we're going to brand you, so she... It's down with the pen, and I went over it. She showed me how to do it, and then I went over it. I, I did it. Did you ever use any hot irons on it? No. Yeah, I, that three in her stomach, I did half of that. Mm -hmm. Shirley Ann did the other half. Where'd the S come from? What do you mean? There's a big S branded on her stomach, right? Little one of her breath. Huh? That's what I'm talking about. Well, that's what you're talking about. Well, how about the inscription on there, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. Who put that on? I did. Did you scratch it on there, paint it on there? How'd you do it? Well, like I said before, Gertie wrote it down there with a pen, and I did the rest. Mm -hmm. She showed me how to do it then. Had Gertie abused this girl? Yeah. He went on to describe exactly how she died. Well, she, uh, she, I come in and about, she come up from the basement, and we noticed she was cold and everything, so we carried her upstairs, give her a warm bath and artificial respiration. When, when she stopped breathing, see, we gave her a warm bath, and then she stopped breathing. And so I gave her artificial respiration for about 10 minutes, and then uh, I went and called the police. After Gertrude pointed the finger at Paula and Coy, Paula made a written confession admitting to some of the abuse. Johnny also confessed to some of the abuse, but he also named some other neighborhood children that were also involved. That led to the arrest of four more area youths who were investigated and later released. 37-year-old Gertrude Banaszewski, 17-year-old Paula Banaszewski, 15-year-old Stephanie Banaszewski, 12-year-old John Banaszewski Jr., 15-year-old Coy Hubbard, and 15-year-old Richard Hobbs were all charged with first-degree murder for striking, beating, kicking, and otherwise inflicting fatal injuries on one Sylvia Likens with premeditated malice. At the trial, all of the children involved in the long-term abuse of Sylvia as well as Jenny Likens took the stand and testified about what they had seen. They all told the same story of Gertrude regularly beating Sylvia with a variety of instruments. They all told stories of being instructed by Gertrude to inflict horrific abuse on Sylvia. The medical examiner testified about Sylvia's injuries and it really was a strong case for the prosecution. During the defense's case, they called a surprise witness to testify. It was 11-year-old Marie Banaszewski. The prosecution had not been informed about this witness, and it was revealed that Marie had been left alone in a room with Gertrude prior to her testimony. 
Then a deputy sheriff noticed that every time Marie was asked a question, she looked to her mother who was nodding yes or no. Not surprisingly, the little girl claimed that her mother had never harmed Sylvia outside of punishments when she was bad, and that Gertrude had never locked Sylvia in the basement. It didn't take long for the young girl to come clean on cross-examination and admit the truth about what had happened in the home. She testified that she had seen her mother hit and burn Sylvia on multiple occasions. Gertrude Banaszewski was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Paula Banaszewski was found guilty of second-degree murder and also sentenced to life in prison. John Banaszewski Jr., Coy Hubbard, and Rick Hobbs were all found guilty of manslaughter and all served less than two years in a state reformatory. Stephanie Banaszewski was found to not have been involved in the injuries that caused Sylvia's death and her charges were dropped. After the trial, Jenny would end up living with the case prosecutor and his family, which included two daughters. She died in 2004 at the age of 54. Lester and Betty Likens separated for good in 1967. Betty died in 1999, and Jenny's twin brother, Benny, would also die that year. Lester died in 2013. In May of 2015, Diana and her then-husband, Cecil Knudsen, got lost while on their way to their son's home in Southern California. They were located two weeks later with Diana in critical condition and Cecil deceased. Diana recovered from the incident. In 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court ordered new trials for both Gertrude and Paula after the judge in their trial ignored requests by the defense for a change of venue and for separate trials. At Paula's new trial, she pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 2 to 20 years in prison. Despite two unsuccessful escape attempts in 1971, she was released on parole in 1972. In 2012, it was revealed that Paula was working as a teacher's aide under the name Paula Pace. She was working for a high school counselor, and when the school got an anonymous tip regarding her true identity, the school fired her for providing false information on her application. At Gertrude's new trial, she was again found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. She was a model prisoner and eventually changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen her middle and maiden names. Despite a large protest at her parole hearing, collecting over 40,000 signatures, Gertrude was paroled in 1985. After that, she moved to Iowa, claiming that she couldn't remember the months prior to Sylvia's death, blaming it on medication. She died of lung cancer on June 16, 1990. She was 61 years old. Gertrude Banaszewski may have had a lot of help torturing and killing Sylvia Likens, but it was all conducted under her direction. She was jealous of a pretty teen girl and couldn't control her bitter rage. She happily inflicted prolonged suffering on another human being, and when she got caught, she tried to lay the blame on her own children. She was a monster who created more monsters. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online.
This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.